Let me ask you a question. When do you tend to get the most reflective about your life? I know for a lot of people it happens at the turn of the year, New Year's resolutions and that sort of thing. I know for other people they get reflective when something bad happens and they're wondering what's going on in their life. For me, I tend to get reflective around my birthdays. Now that I probably have more birthdays behind me than I have ahead of me, I especially get reflective. And I ask this question, if God grants me another year, how will I invest it? I think that's actually a very wise question for so many of us to ask. If God grants us another year, or another half year, another month, another week, or even another day, how should you and I invest it? What should we seek after? What should we be about? We're going to look at this passage today that was just read for us. And we're going to call our study, Don't Waste Your Life. Here Jesus is about to come up to Jerusalem. And we've been on a long march with him for 10 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. And this is going to be the last thing that he talks about before he enters there. And so let me just give you a heads up. This is one of the more challenging and difficult teachings in the Gospel of Luke. We've come across several of those which have stretched us and have caused us to ask questions and and what exactly Jesus is up to and what does he mean by this. And so this is going to be one of those here. And there's a lot of moving parts to this. It's a little bit longer passage, a lot of moving parts, but I have great faith in us that we're going to be able to follow it. You're among some of the smartest people I've met in this city. But it takes more than just great smarts. It takes the Spirit of God working in our lives to open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus. And so let's pause before we dig into this passage and ask God to teach us and to guide us and to show us this great King. Lord, as we come to this passage and really the last stop that Jesus has before he enters Jerusalem, I pray that you would help us to understand why this is here. Yes, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, as followers of Jesus, those of us who've committed our lives to him, our calling is to master the teachings of our Savior. And so as we come to this passage, which in some ways is very difficult, would you give us great grace to understand it? Not only to understand it, but to apply it to our lives. And so we'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last thing that we learned in the Gospel of Luke was that Jesus stopped by a place called Jericho. And there was a rich tax collector named Zacchaeus. And he encountered Zacchaeus there, wanted to go spend time with him. And Zacchaeus had an encounter with Jesus Christ that utterly changed him. And last words that we heard from Jesus before we looked at this passage today is a mission statement from Jesus. Jesus said that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. If you want to boil it down to what Jesus is all about, you cannot get any clearer than this. Jesus is all about seeking and saving the lost. Those who are far from God, he wants to bring near. And so that's what people should be thinking as he's going into Jerusalem. And so Luke tells us in verse 11, as they heard these things, that is that Jesus' mission is to seek and to save the lost, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. If Jesus is the Messiah, that means everything is about to change. The crowds are following him. They're at a fever pitch. The smell of revolution is in the air. And they can't wait for Jesus to enter Jerusalem as a king. And not just any kind of king, but a conquering king. 
In fact, in the passage we're going to look at next week, we're going to hear the crowds greeting Jesus by saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going all in thinking Jesus is this revolutionary king. And he is a revolutionary king. But the problem is, is they've got it all wrong. You see, what they're looking for is a political messiah. If he's really about revolution, if he really is serious about the kingdom of God, that must mean one thing. Salvation comes at the expense of their enemies, which their enemies are Roman soldiers occupying their city. Their salvation comes if Jesus ignites the revolution and kills their enemies. Israel will be liberated, they'll be politically sovereign, and they'll be supreme among the nations. That's what they're living for. That's what they're hoping for. That's what they're thinking Jesus is all about when they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so Luke tells us that he tells them a parable. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. This needs to be, for us, kind of the, the defining category as we look at what's going on. They're thinking he's a certain kind of king, so Jesus is going to tell them a parable about the kind of king that he is. And what we need to know that's probably not really evident to us unless we've dug into the history of what was going on at the time of Jesus is that there was a king named Archelaus. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great, the one who slaughtered the children in an attempt to, to get Jesus. And upon his death, he left his will, and he said he wanted his sons to rule in his place. And so Archelaus was one of the, pe- one of the sons that received a portion of King Herod's kingdom. And he was a ruthless man. In fact, Jesus' father, Joseph, had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, and he was afraid to go there. So coming back from Egypt, he took his family around Judea to get back to Galilee, And it may have been that he had heard that Archelaus, upon assuming power, had quelled a rebellion of Pharisees and killed some 3,000 people at the temple. That has to be in the back of our mind because Archelaus was a king who went to a far country to receive the title of king. Even though his father wanted him to be king, there's only one person who could give the stamp of approval, and that was Caesar Augustus. And so he had gone away to this far country before Caesar, to be anointed king of this region. What we need to know is that there was a delegation of 50 Jewish leaders who went and opposed him there and said, we don't want this man to rule over us. Even his own brother, Antipas, went and said, he doesn't need to rule. And some 8,000 Jews gathered around where Caesar Augustus was having this hearing And said, we don't want this man to rule over Judea. So that's the background. We have to keep that in mind. The kind of king that Archelaus was. And so Jesus said, verse 12, A nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So that's the background. They're hearing that. And what Jesus is going to do, he's going to take kind of a story that was in the headlines and he's going to kind of reapply that around himself. Because they're thinking he's going to go in and slaughter the Romans. Verse 3, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now a mina was about three months of wages for the ordinary person. 
it's a significant sum. I mean, not outlandishly huge, but a significant sum of money to be entrusted with. What if your boss entrusted you with three months' salary and told you to go and invest it, to engage in business? Okay, that's kind of the idea of what's going on here. So he had his servants and gave them minus to invest. But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. And so they're thinking, that story of Archelaus, this is exactly what has happened. And Jesus is telling a story that is like that. And so let me give us a bit of a, a summary sheet, a cheat sheet, if you would, to kind of help us understand this parable that Jesus is talking about. The nobleman in this situation, who goes off to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return, is Jesus. In fact, Jesus has been talking about how he's going to go and be crucified and handed over. But they're not understanding that. And so Jesus now tells him he's going to go and he's going to get this kingdom and then he's going to return. And so they're starting to maybe try to put things together and understand what kind of Messiah can he be? The far country Jesus goes to is heaven. The kingdom that he receives is the sovereignty to rule and to reign. As he said upon his resurrection, this commission to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The servants that he entrusted those minas to are the disciples. The mina is the gospel that they've been entrusted with. The Apostle Paul would speak in 1 Thessalonians of being entrusted with the gospel and that being the motivation for doing what he does. And so the delegation, another part of this parable, we need to see as the religious leaders, those who embody this truth that they don't want this man to rule over them. All right? That's our little cheat sheet to keep us going. So verse 15 tells us that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So Jesus says, I'm a king that's going away to receive my kingdom. I'm coming back. And he gathers his servants together, and he wants to know what they've done with the money that he's given to them to invest. And so we need to ask ourselves this question. How engaged are we in the business of the gospel? Jesus is using a money illustration here as the point of his parable. But the bigger question is, is what are we who are disciples of Jesus doing with what's been entrusted to us? That is the gospel. The parable continues. Jesus says, the first came before him, that is the nobleman saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. I mean, this is an incredible return, a tenfold increase in the investment that he was initially given. And he says it almost humbly, not like, I made this money, but look, your mina has made 10 minus more. And this is what he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> this man had been given basically three months worth of money to invest. He invested, it gets a great return, and so what the king does, he sets him over ten cities. He makes him a ruler. I mean, who rewards servants like this? Verse 18, the second came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made five minus more. 500% increase. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Now let's just stop and think about what's going on here. First of all, the king says to his servant, well done, good servant. What if Jesus were to speak these words over your life? 
How would this change the way you thought about investing your life for the sake of the kingdom? If you're granted one more year, six more months, one more month, one more week, one more day, and you invested that for the kingdom, what would it mean for you, for Jesus, to say this to you, well done, good servant? You may be thinking of another time when Jesus told a similar parable, and he had the same kind of commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. My friends, don't overlook the fact that Jesus longs to give commendation. He longs to say to you, well done, good servant. And he wants to reward you in extraordinary ways. I love what Hudson Taylor said, the missionary to China. A little thing is just a little thing. But faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. These servants were given just a little bit of money, a mina, to invest. And when they invested it and the return came back, Jesus saw that as a big thing. And he rewards them. In fact, the scriptures tell us, for example, in the book of Revelation, that God has made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. What God wants to do for his people is to set them up as rulers, kings and queens of this world. And if we dial into the original biblical story, that has echoes of Eden, right? When God set up humanity to be co-rulers with them. This is what he wants to do. This is the commendation Jesus longs to give to people like you and me. But then there's a turn in the story. We're told in verse 20, then another came, another servant came saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Uh Uh-oh. This is not what he was supposed to do. He was given a mina by his king, entrusted with it, to invest it, to engage in business. And he doesn't do anything with it. What's worse, instead of taking responsibility, he turns it back and makes the excuse, the reason why he didn't do anything, the character of the king. He says, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. That word severe in the Greek is the word from which we get the English phrase austere. It can mean severe, like my translation translates it. It can be translated as hard or harsh or exacting. I was afraid of you, says this servant, because you are a severe, harsh, austere man. One commentator phrased it or summarized it like this. Someone who wants to get blood out of a stone. So he says, he puts this excuse up, why he didn't do anything. You're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Not only does he accuse him of having bad character, he says you're essentially a robber. You oppress. That's how you gain your riches. And I didn't want anything to do with that. What a curious response that this servant had to his king. Jesus says in verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and repaying what I did not sow. You think I'm that kind of a person that I would squeeze blood out of a stone? Then why did you not put money my money in the bank, and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. If you didn't want to engage in the business that I gave to you, why didn't you at least put it in the bank? 
And we would have gotten something in return for that. Notice the harsh word that is spoken here. You think I'm a harsh man? You wicked servant. Philip Reichen in his commentary was helpful for me in understanding kind of what's going on here. He said the word wicked may sound severe, but that is how Jesus described him. Really, what else would you call a servant who refused to obey his master's command, slandered his master's good name, and was so afraid of making a mistake that he failed to do what he was supposed to do? According to Jesus, it is wickedness not to use what we have to serve our God. So the story continues. Verse 24. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Here the Lord and Master says, take the mina from him that he did not invest and give it to the one who made ten minas more. And they said, Lord, he already has a bunch. He has ten minas already. And Jesus says, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. What an interesting phrase from Jesus. And as I was reflecting on this, the question that came to my mind is, is this servant a true disciple of Jesus? I mean, the first two disciples took what was given to them and used it. And there was a return for that. And Jesus was crazy excited about that return and rewarded them. But he was another disciple Another servant who accused the character of Jesus. And so is this disciple a true, I'm sorry, is this servant a a true disciple of Jesus? And Luke doesn't answer that question for us. And so I think maybe we're meant to just kind of live with that and to feel that tension of what is going on here with this servant that was entrusted with this responsibility, that was entrusted with the gospel and didn't do anything with it. There is one other part to this story that's a bit harsh-sounding. Remember that delegation that didn't want Jesus to rule over them? He says, But for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. If you had this kind of reaction, Jesus, this makes me extremely uncomfortable. I would get what you're saying. This makes me uncomfortable, what Jesus said here. But let's remember the context. What they wanted was a king who would slaughter his enemies. That's what they're excited about, Jesus going to Jerusalem. At last, this king is going to go and take his power and reign, and he's going to slaughter his enemies. And so the question I think that this text is presenting to us is Jesus a king like Archelaus. Remember, Jesus is using that story ripped from the headlines of Archelaus going to a far country, receiving a kingdom for himself in spite of the fact that he was known to slaughter people. Is Jesus a king like Archelaus? Is this the kind of king that you want, O Jerusalem? And then we're told in verse 28, When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus leaves this very harsh-sounding phrase ringing in our ears as he's trying to correct their notions. And so is Jesus a king like Archelaus? And stick with me, my friends. The way that Luke crafts this story answers this question for us. 
Because Jesus, instead of riding into Jerusalem, the very next story that he's going to tell us, instead of riding into Jerusalem upon a war horse with sword and bow and arrow in his hand, we're told that he rides in upon a donkey. And not just a donkey, but a colt, the foal of a donkey. The picture is, is quite humorous. This foal of a donkey, would it look like Jesus riding this, this miniature beast and his feet are probably dragging the ground? This is not the kind of king who rides in on a war horse with weapons of war in his hand, but instead comes gently riding this beast of burden. What is going on here? Nevertheless, people are still buying in. They're going to say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But then we're told that Jesus did this. Luke tells us as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if even you, if you, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, saying, if only you would have known what would have brought you peace, if only you would have received what I am offering to you. But they didn't. They couldn't. They wouldn't. They wanted to live by the sword. And so they're going to die by the sword. Jesus continues and says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And I don't know this slide shows up very well. This is the artwork showing Jerusalem surrounded by Roman legionnaires. And they sacked this city within a generation of the time of Jesus. So great was the suffering that people resorted to cannibalism within these doors. They didn't want the kind of salvation that Jesus offered where he came to seek and save the lost. They wanted a king who would slaughter their enemies because they rejected the way of Jesus. They would be slaughtered by their enemies. This was a historical fact. This happened in AD 70. Jesus would say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Jesus wanted to protect them from their war path, but they wouldn't let him. And at the end of the week, for when Jesus entered riding on this beast of burden, they handed him over to be crucified. Pilate, finding no guilt in Jesus, is trying not to do this. Pilate sought to release him, we're told. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. <laughs> this was a brilliant move by the religious leaders. <laughs> if you let Jesus go, this man who's claiming to be a king... You're not Caesar's friend because he is opposing Caesar. And if you don't crucify him, we're going to tell Caesar on you, is basically the implicit threat. Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. 
And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, the religious leaders, answered, we have no king but Caesar. What chilling words. They didn't want Jesus to rule over them. Instead, they wanted a ruthless man like Caesar Augustus to rule over them. And the chief priests, the the leaders of the people of Jesus, the Jews, said that we don't have any king but Caesar. Pilate washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. In other words, we will take the blame for killing Jesus. And so they led him out to be crucified. See, at the beginning of the week, they thought they were getting the kind of king who would slaughter their enemies. But watch this. By the time that week had expired, they had the kind of king who was slaughtered by his enemies. They didn't want this kind of a weak king. And yet, the mystery of what happened in this moment is so glorious that it takes the miracle of God for our eyes to see it. Because Jesus, my friends, was enthroned on this cross. Yes, he had a crown placed upon his head. It was a crown of thorns. And he endured much agony and much suffering as the sins of people were laid upon his broad shoulders. And there God condemned in the flesh of Jesus sins of people like you and me. But even there, Jesus was reigning. Even there, the kind of king that Jesus is, is interceding for people. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The Apostle Paul, reflecting on what happened when Jesus was crucified, said this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Remember Jesus is saying, I've come to seek and save the lost. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. If, while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus is the kind of king who is willing to be slaughtered by his enemies for his enemies, to reconcile his enemies to God. That's the kind of king Jesus is. And so there's lots of more questions that we could raise and answer and And I've not said everything that needs to be said about this passage. But for where Luke is going with it, it's sufficient. So why does Luke record this teaching of Jesus for us as he's about to tell us of that day when Jesus enters Jerusalem? I think he's trying to communicate to us this. Jesus is a different kind of king. And the question as he gets ready to enter Jerusalem is do you want this kind king to rule your life? Jesus is a different kind of king, and do you want this kind king to rule over your life? And if so, what's the evidence of that? And so two points of application, my friends. The first one is this. Above all, seek the world's king, the world's true king. Luke's not done with the story. We're getting there, but let me just fast forward to what happens at the very end of his gospel. 
He's meeting with his disciples, and he tells them these words. Thus it is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He says, this is what the scriptures have been teaching us. This is what's been leading to. The repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he says to them, did you get where he says to start? Jesus says, I want you to start preaching this gospel in Jerusalem, where his enemies are. I didn't get this connection until I read this book by John Bunyan. He was a minister who spent much time in prison for preaching the gospel. You probably know him from Pilgrim's Progress. But he has another work called The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. And he helped me connect the dots with what's going on here and the significance of Jesus telling his disciples to go back into the place where his very enemies are and to offer them grace. Bunyan writes, One would have thought, since the Jerusalem sinners were the worst and greatest sinners, Christ's greatest enemies, and those that not only despised his person, doctrine, and miracles, but that a little before had their hands up to their elbows in his heart blood, that he should have rather said, go into all the world and preach repentance and remission of sins among all the nations, and after that, offer the same grace to Jerusalem. Yes, it would have been infinite grace if he had said so. But what grace is this? When it commands that the repentance and remission of sins, which is designed to be preached to all nations, should first of all be offered to Jerusalem in the place of the worst of sinners. This is the kind of savior Jesus is. This is the kind of king that he is. That instead of slaughtering his enemies, offers his enemies grace upon grace. The apostle Paul drunk of this deeply. Paul was a member of the Pharisees. He was a part of that group that wanted Jesus dead. He was a part of the group that said, we don't want this man ruling over us. And in an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, he was converted and given grace. And by his own account, this is what he said. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Let me pause there. Do you hear the echo of Jesus' prayer on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Paul says, I was given grace because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul never recovered from the fact that Jesus gave him grace. He was an enemy of Christ and now he's been converted and has become a disciple of Christ. And Paul goes on to say, for this very reason, I was shown mercy. So then me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, you want to know why Jesus saved me instead of slaughtering me? He saved me so that anyone who thought that they were too bad, too evil, too wicked to come into his kingdom... He has used me as a trophy of his grace so that the worst of the worst can look at me and say, hey, Jesus had mercy on him. Maybe he will have mercy on me. And of course, Paul ends this section right here by saying, now to the king, 
And I think he's speaking of King Jesus. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So my friends, if you have not come to that place in your own life where you have received this kind of King, do so in this moment. He offers to you forgiveness and reconciliation, just like he offered to Paul, just like he offered to his worst of enemies. And he offers to us this day. Here's the second point of application, which is just an extension of that first one. Above all, seek the world's true king and the king's kingdom. Jeremy Treat in his book, Seek First, said this. Jesus gave his followers many commands, but there was only thing he said to seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. This is the one thing that changes everything. According to Jesus, what matters most in life is the kingdom of God. And so if we circle back to that parable where he entrusted his servants with the gospel, the question becomes, what are we doing with the gospel? How are we investing our lives in the kingdom of Jesus? And so my friends, let's offer to Christ our time, our talents, our treasures for the sake of his kingdom. He's worth it. He's the kind of king that is absolutely worth it. And so my friends, if God grants you another year, another six months, another month, another week, another day, how will you invest it for the king and his kingdom? Merciful Church, may you welcome the reign of Jesus in and through your life.